and welcome to the Chinese Revolutions podcast, where we are looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements starting from 1839, First Opium War, up to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is basically a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Today's episode is about some of the books that gave me the inspiration to do this podcast. Uh, before we get to that, some announcements. Uh, the main podcast will always be free, but I am looking to build up to 100 paid subscribers uh, to start producing supplementary episodes, biographies of key people, technology that's important you know, for the events that we're describing here. Uh, you'll, you'll get to go behind the scenes um, with the Substack, uh, stories from my time in China, um, other things about the podcast that's on the Substack. Okay, so that'll be coming in a bit. Uh, still working all that out. More at the end if you if you're interested. So here we go. Uh, let's see some. Okay, so some of these books that I'm going to be talking about, uh, some of them just gave me impressions that carried over. Uh, some of them gave me critical insights into the character of China's transformations during its move into the modern era. Uh, also, just a note I'd like to make before we dive in, uh, the the music in for the intro and the outro, it's from the Chinese national anthem, China Heroically Stands in the Universe. It was the anthem from 1915 to 1921. I use that one because it is a... But it's before the communists. Part of why I'm I'm really really trying to go before the communists, uh, because it's just so easy to imagine everybody walking around in Mao suits, uh, wearing you know blue or green, um, you know, or the big green Chinese army overcoat thing. Um, it's so easy to imagine that. But there's so much more to Chinese revolutions than just 1949 or, and the Communist Party of China. All right, uh, for... Okay, so the so, dive, so diving into the books here, uh, one of the ones was Stillwell and the American Experience in China, 1911 to 1945, by Barbara Tuchman. Um, you know, one... like This book, ac along the along with the investigation of the work of Joseph Stilwell as a general trying to coordinate the Chinese defense against the Japanese, you also get an analysis of the Chinese situation. So Chiang Kai-shek, was, he was mostly looking to crush the communists. The Japanese would leave eventually, um... The Americans were foreigners, they were not Chinese, even if they were on China's side, even if they had good intentions and everything, they weren't Chinese. They had their own agenda. Well, China has its own agenda. 
uh, Chiang Kai-shek kind of played the Americans off the Japanese. Though he had no connection with the Japanese, he could kind of say that, you know, maybe he would turn to the Japanese if the Americans didn't give him enough supplies. It's 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 the, the, the kind of thing you could say in a closed-door conversation just to raise somebody's hackles. Um, but then also there's the Chiang Kai-shek wanting to have China look important, but for, you know, like the Americans and the British, China is the one receiving support. China is the one they're fighting for. So it's like, what do we do with this guy? Uh, he wants to look important, but it's not like he's raising an army of 10 million to drive out the Japanese. So like, what's going on? Um, also, you this book gives a pivotal uh, moment right at the end of foreign powers having the run of the country. So, like, World War II is when all the, you know, the nice concessions and all the spheres of influence on the Chinese seaboard, that's all over. Japan conquered it all, so that that uprooted the Europeans. Uh, but then, at the close of the Chinese Civil War, China finally had 100% control over its own territory. Tai, you, know, you know, the Taiwan situation accepted. Um, the, the, the last paragraphs of this book by Barbara Touchman really, really got me. It's uh, three paragraphs. I'll read them right here. Would the fate of China have been different if Stilwell had been allowed to reform the army and create an effective combat force of 90 divisions? I myself firmly believe, wrote General William R. Pierce, who as a colonel had served as chief of the OSS guerrilla unit to Burma, that had Stilwell's plan for equipping, organizing, and training the Chinese ground forces had been carried through to completion, Japanese infantry would not have been able to overrun air bases in South China in 1944. Nor would the Chinese communist ground troops have achieved their ends after the war with the Jap when when after the war with the Japanese was over. This assumption might have been true if Asia were clay in the hands of the West, but the regenerative idea Stillwells and others could not be imposed from outside. The Guomindang military structure could not be reformed without reform of the system which from which it sprang, and as Stilwell himself recognized, to reform such a system, in quotes, it must be torn to pieces. In great things, wrote Erasmus, it is enough to have tried. Uh, Stilwell's mission was America's supreme try in China. He made the maximum effort because his temperamental because his temperament permitted no less. He never slackened and he never gave up. Yet the mission failed in its ultimate purpose. Because the goal was unachievable, the impulse was not Chinese. Combat efficiency and the offensive spirit, like the Christianity and democracy offered by missionaries and foreign advisors, were not indigenous demands of the society and culture to which they were brought. Even the Yellow River Road that Stilwell built in 1921 had disappeared twelve years later. China was a problem for which there was no American solution. The American effort to sustain the status quo could not supply an outworn government with strength and stability or popular support. 
it could not hold up a husk nor long delay the cyclical passing of the mandate of heaven. In the end, China went her own way as if the Americans had never come. So all of the history of outside powers interacting with China, China went its own way because China was going to do what China wanted to do. Um, another book, this one, this book gave me more of a strategic level impression. Um, this is about the Korean War. It's a book called The Coldest Winter by David Halberstam. Uh, at the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016, I lined up a bunch of history books that I just had, and I uh, ordered them chronologically based on the history they were covering. Like, so one of them was The Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence. Then I did a book about, uh, Par about it was called Paris 1919, I forget the author, uh, about the Versailles Peace Conference. Then I forget... What was next? There was a book about World War II, and maybe the one that was next was the one about Stillwell that I just read from. But the, the last in this line of books was The Coldest Winter. Um, you know, th this, this, the way that I did things, it's extremely profitable. You know, sometimes I could look at a reference in one book and say, I just read that book. Um, so I, I recommend it very much. Um, so here it, it made the position of China in deciding to get involved in the war very clear, and it made the position of Americans uh, very clear. Like, so getting involved in China after the fall of China, like that really bothered everybody. Um, so the the rule like so one of the interesting things was the rules of the war. The Americans didn't go in and bomb Manchuria, you know, and neither did the Chinese nor Russians attack Japan. Like they never attacked Japan, yet the deadly deadly uh B29s full of napalm were coming down from Japan. Um but then also it marked a shift in, from in China from being a theater of a wider war to being a primary driver in another war. So, yeah, China's back. Uh, for the American home front, you, you would look at the, uh, Henry Luce, the founder of Time and Life magazines. He was pushing a certain narrative of the fall of China and the conflict in Korea. Um, the, con the communist takeover of China was beyond the control of the Americans, um, but like, it didn't feel good to anybody at that time losing to communism, like to, you know, seeing this country that American civil society for many, many years had been in interacting with for development projects, for missionary work. Um, that was a huge thing. And so, uh, even in, like the the strategy in Korea was to make it so bloody that the other side wanted to quit because, as the old saying goes, you'd never get involved in a land war in Asia. Well, here's a land war in Asia, so we need to find some way that like so the 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 strategy was worked out under General Matthew Ridgeway to um, basically 
use aerial resupply to help uh, American and other UN ground forces hang on while the Chinese and the North Koreans would attack and attack and attack and just make it so bloody that they would agree to a ceasefire. That this wasn't satisfactory to a lot of people who were hardcore opponents of communism. And so this haunted uh, the American establishment going into Vietnam. It's like, we don't want to be soft on communism, but it's like, we don't want to totally jump in here. So half measure after half measure uh, is what you got in Vietnam. So winning in Korea came before the loss in Vietnam. Uh, the, the next book was The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947 by Daniel Kurtz Phelan. The difficulty of pushing through any sort of consensus that the Guomindang would stick to is one of the foremost things that really sticks out in this book. Um, the In the political program of the Guomindang, which was a Leninist party with a revolutionary vanguard and an ideology and all that, um, a lot of their primary supporters were capitalists, um, rich landowners, uh, even like criminal, like China, part of parts of China's criminal underworld. Um, the communists, while also bad, they had a coherent vision. Um, it was, and their vision for the future in no way included the communists. And Chiang Kai-shek could appreciate this. Uh, they, they were diametrically opposed enemies, internal enemies of the same, in the same country. Uh, so having read the book about Stilwell, this book really followed on very nicely. Uh, this is something I read one, two, three years later. Uh, maybe four years? Anyway, it was a long time later. Um, it was interesting to see what happened later. Like, see, when you see the foreigners trying to send in their very, very high-level generals to get everybody to talk and make nice, you know they're on the way out. And so you, you see this all over this book. The, 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 the nationalists and the communists would, at any rate, not openly oppose Marshall's efforts, but they weren't really cooperating with full verve, gusto, and enthusiasm. Uh, Marshall and Stilwell know each other from earlier years in China, actually. Marshall had a lot of China experience himself. Uh, there were amusing anecdotes, uh, like with uh, Chiang Kai-shek's enthusiasm for Chinese checkers. Um, one, like one of the... Uh, yeah, it's like Chinese checkers isn't even Chinese. Like Chinese chess is... You know, in Chinese, it's xiangqi. Okay, so so to to bring this to a point, uh, there was this idea that that General Marshall had uh, to make a three man commission. There's General Marshall, uh, one representative for the Nationalists, one for the Communists. Uh, I think Zhou Anlai was one of the first for the Communists. Um, 
but the so then the idea was to get a nationalist officer, a communist officer, and an American officer, and so reproduce this uh, peace deal making, reconciliation making committee. Send send these guys all over China to help everybody make nice. It didn't work. Uh, one side or the other would change their representative, um, or they would just drag things out, not you know, not not come to an agreement. The nationalists delayed and obfuscated, and the communists salami sliced their way forward, so that they wouldn't openly attack American soldiers who were slowly being withdrawn from China as a result of American popular pressure. Uh, you know, you're like, okay, we won World War II. Let's bring the guys home now. Thank you very much. Um, so it's this you would see Marshall try to make connections with the like neutral intellectuals who might have been inclined toward the Guomindang, but they weren't like rich, uh, like rich industrialists or, uh, certainly not in the, but these guys would get assassinated. Um, Chiang Kai-shek was kind of like the one guy that everybody on the nationalist side could agree on, which is part of why he was able to stay in power. It, it's more complicated. I once read a biography of Chiang Kai-shek, so I mean, there, there's a lot more to it, but that's good enough for now. The um, just, just how live the Chinese political situation was. It like things were going to move, and they were going to move hard and fast. Um, the the last book I'm going to talk about for this episode is. The Invention of China by Bill Hayton. When I first saw this book title, I scoffed at it. The more I learned about it, I I took, I, okay, I think I could see the guy's point. Then when I read it, I basically adopted his thesis, and it has now become part of the backbone for this podcast. Uh, mostly, anyway. Uh, and it's not that China is fake, but it's to keep in mind the continual rearticulation of a civilization, culture, nation, that it's always going to kind of be redefining itself, redefining its past, reassessing its legacies. Um, like, so one thing, it talks about the, the Qing dynasty navigating relationships with European powers and new notions of boundaries. Like, so when they met with the Russians to discuss the land borders, they had to meet like as equals, not as tributary, you know, tribute-bringing diplomats, tribute-bringing dignitaries um, from a tributary state. My goodness, that's a word salad there. Find a nice dressing for it, would you? Um... They had to meet them as equals. Like, okay, we're going to make an agreement, and, like, this line, okay, this this is my side, this is your side, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, the, like, you know, according to Hayton, uh, the, the Qing dynasty, the Manchus, kept it hidden from the Han Chinese um, because... They still had this, 
like, like this notion of China being like the sun at the center of a geopolitical solar system, like like other like barbarian states around were were tributary states. They they weren't you know, equals to the the Chinese system. But then you see, okay, the Qing lose their power to maintain sovereignty, the resurgence of Han nationalism, uh, the Han bringing their self-identity up to date and removing the foreign overlords. Um, you also see uh, the, the roots of, say, some of the uh, Xinjiang atrocities that are going on today that uh, whether or not from an you know, academic analysis point, it's a genocide, it's it, it, crimes against humanity ki kind of stuff. It, it's okay, what's going on with the Uyghurs. That's actually something you see in one form or another through Chinese history. And the clarification of Han nationality has a lot of consequences for what it means to be a good Chinese citizen. And I'm getting this from Bill Hayton. Um, and then one thing to consider about Marxism is that it is ceaselessly adapted to solve certain problems. Um, so what you see today is in China, okay, there's a resurgence in Chinese nationalism, but also uh, the Communist Party is working very hard studying the example of the Soviet Union so that it doesn't fall. Uh, um, they're, they're keeping Marxism alive. Um, Marxism gave a coherent thesis to organize the armies kicking the imperialists out of uh, kicking them out of China in the 1940s, uh, and it helps organize Chinese national development and making sure everybody prospers. Um, so one one other example of Marxism kind of solving national problems. Okay, if you ever look at Robert C. Tucker's two-volume biography of Stalin. Um, Tucker gives the interpretation that the, that USSR policy is basically the reemergence of what he calls Great Russian Chauvinism. Like the Great Russians are the uh, the Slavic people who follow the political state centered on like Moscow, Saint Petersburg. You know, like White Russians are you know that's Belarus, which is White Russia. U Ukraine is you, you know like you know, people on that, you know, but they're not great Russians, uh, that the, that the Russian empire driven by Moscow, by a Moscow centered state, uh, this absorbed the ideology of Marxism, but it manifested itself in basically a reconstituted Russian empire. You know, after all of the, uh, Minority areas had broken away from, you know, all the Stan countries, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Finland. You, uh, did Ukraine break away? I, I don't... Um, part, part of Poland did. Though, like, a lot of that was all... It was literally reconquered in the Russian Civil War. 
um, so so not just a civil war, but you know reconquering the old empire. So uh, that's the so as you see China today, it's it's assimilated what it's wanted from the outside world, and it's going forward with its with its plan. So to wrap things up, uh, a lot of this series is me reckoning with a colossal enormity. So you're welcome along as I grapple with the modern history of where I spent seven years of my life. Um, like part of being in China is like there's sorts, certain sorts of things you just can't say, partly because you might get kicked out of the country, partly because um, I, I don't know, maybe you'll get fired. I, I, I was never... You know, like, like n nobody ever, you know, like, okay, like I, because of a mistake, a student got upset about something or other about Taiwan and a worksheet that I didn't even build anyway. I, you know, like nothing ever happened to me, but there's this chilling effect. So I'm working through all of these things that I've learned, uh, and I'm going to present it for you in a more refined, uh, consumable format. So, we're going to go deep because if you want to dig out a tree, you have to dig under the roots so that they come up to nice and whole and you get the whole tree and you can look at what, what has been growing. Um, my top two recommendations from what I've read, uh, Still Well into the American Experience in China, 1911 to 1945 by Barbara Touchman, The Invention of China by Bill Hayton. I'll have links to that in the show notes. And because it's my podcast and I can cry if I want to, I also really recommend the China Mission George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947 by Daniel Kurtz-Felan. So now uh, to really wrap things up, I'd love to hear from you at ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. What can I get better? What did I get wrong? Do you have any shameless flattery? I'd love to hear that too. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, remember the main podcast is always free. Um, you can support for free by, okay, like, is there a po history podcast you like? Write in to the people who do that one. Tell them about me. Tell them, you know, tell them that maybe I'm into, you know, maybe this will be interesting to them. That's free and you can do it. Um, there's a giving platform called buymeacoffee.com. Uh, my profile there is buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. C is in Chinese, R as in revolutions. Isn't that handy? Buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can give once. You can be a monthly member. Another way to support the podcast is uh, join our join the Substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. You can go go behind the scenes uh, get stories from my life in China. Uh, and, uh, once I get five, once I get 100 monthly subscribers, uh, across either platform, um, let me know if there's another platform I should be using, or if there's another social media place, I should open a profile. I'm trying to lean away from in, from Facebook. I might do something like Instagram because then I could show maps. It seems to be more image centric. Um, all right. So this has been Nathan Bennett and the next episode that you'll be hearing will be the first in the main program here. So this is excited. Let's get going. It, this is exciting. 
I am excited. Right, anyway. Mm-hmm.